You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Have you heard? The RHISAC Cyber Intelligence Summit is coming to Denver, Colorado from April 9th through the 11th. The summit is part of the RHISAC's mission to help improve cybersecurity across the entire retail and hospitality sector. As a result, it has become the can't-miss event for retail and hospitality cybersecurity practitioners. Join us for three days of professional development and networking with the brightest minds in retail and hospitality cybersecurity. Attendees have access to prominent thought leaders and industry experts and plenty of opportunities for collaboration. For more information and to register, visit summit.rhisac.org. That's summit.rhisac.org. We can't wait to see you in April. Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Vanderlinden. I'm the Vice President of Membership and Marketing at the Retail and Hospitality ISAC, and this is the RHISAC Podcast. You know, it's been a couple weeks since I've been able to host an episode of the podcast. There have been some great conversations since then. I encourage you to check out our archives, and if you found them useful like I did, please share them with your friends and colleagues. For this episode, I am joined by two members of the RHISAC's own Intel team. JJ Josing is our Principal Threat Researcher, and Lee Clark is a Cyber Threat Intel Analyst and Writer. Hello, gentlemen, and welcome. There have actually been a number of topics that could be considered breaking news in the cybersecurity world recently, so we thought it'd be great to go over one of them. JJ and Lee are instrumental in the updates you've seen from us lately on everything from the conflict in Ukraine, the Octa breach, and Spring 4 Shell. And today, that last one is what we're going to be talking about. JJ and Lee are going to be sharing with us how the RHISAC was able to confirm the proof of concept of the Spring 4 Shell vulnerability and provide timely, accurate information as the situation escalated and then de-escalated. But first, a threat that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon is ransomware. My first guest is Kelly White, founder of Risk Recon. Kelly and I are going to discuss a recent study Risk Recon conducted on the cybersecurity hygiene of ransomware victims. Kelly, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah. Uh, Risk Recon is an associate member of the RHI SAC, so thank you very much for the support you've given us and our members over the past couple of years. You're the founder of Risk Recon, so tell us a little bit about your company and why you started it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with why I started it. I'm a longtime cybersecurity practitioner myself, having spent about five years in consulting starting in 97 and then 10 years with one of the largest financial institutions in the U.S. as their CISO. And during that time between, say, 2005 and 2015, I observed as a practitioner a dramatic shift in the IT landscape of how organizations build and operate the systems upon which they're founded. And that major shift was outsourcing to software as a service providers, infrastructure providers, and so forth. So there's this mass migration from everything being done in-house to then moving very rapidly systems and applications outside of the organization. And with that went data and risk. Right. Now, operating all of your systems and services and data inside your own organization is, it was a comfortable place, you know, back in the old days of, IT and information security. 
with the move of uh, systems and services to third parties, the location of the risk moved as well. Mm-hmm. And and so did the control over an operation of the controls that protect those data and, and systems. So uh, information security risk management has significantly moved towards a discipline of having to understand and you know, assess and secure not just your own enterprise, but an entire ecosystem. So that really was the catalyst for Risk Recon, where Risk Recon is a provider of cybersecurity ratings and assessments mm-hmm. that companies used to not only understand their own enterprise cybersecurity hygiene, but also to understand the cybersecurity hygiene and risks within an, an entire portfolio of suppliers. Our approach is really using an outside-in passive assessment approach that uh, now about 4,000 companies are using to either manage and assess their own cybersecurity or to manage the cybersecurity of their entire ecosystem supplier. ecosystem, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that conversation about risk management and third-party risk is something that's really kind of catching fire within our members as well. But let's talk about one particular risk that strikes fear in the hearts of, of many CISOs and cybersecurity professionals, ransomware. Our benchmark report found that that is one of the top priorities for CISOs in 2022. Okay. You guys did a study recently analyzing the cybersecurity hygiene of ransomware victims. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so... The genesis of the study, that the motivation of the study was this. Primary question. Risk Recon is assessing the cybersecurity hygiene of millions of companies. So we have data on all of that. Right. And so we know which companies are performing well, have good cybersecurity hygiene, and which ones have poor cybersecurity hygiene, you know, across 40 different security criteria, things like software patching, web encryption, you know, network filtering, things like that, application security. And the reason we did this study was to say, is there a correlation between the quality of your cybersecurity hygiene and the rate of ransomware events that you'll experience? Right, because you have have this data going backwards. So you can do this look back, which I think is unique. (laughs) You know, we'd, we'd like to think as practitioners that our efforts are worthwhile, that Managing cybersecurity risk well, maintaining good cybersecurity hygiene results in better risk outcomes. In the case of ransomware, being that you have fewer ransomware events than those organizations that have very poor cybersecurity hygiene. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So the work we're doing, the work our members are doing, is actually having an effect is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Right. And so what we did was going back all the way to 2016 – We surfaced publicly reported ransomware events where we knew for a fact that, you know, based on the public reports, that the ransomware event resulted in encryption of the systems of the victim and disruption of the victim's operations. So there's a a lot of ransomware events. I mean, they're called ransomware events, but it's just a data theft. That's certainly a bad thing. We focused on the segment of ransomware events that are shutting down business operations because the victim systems were compromised. So significant ones. Yes, yes. And so the the total population that we brought forward through that study was 776 ransomware events. Wow. Uh, since 2016 that were publicly reported in the media or in 
uh, 8Q or 8K filings with the SEC. 8K, right, yeah. 8K filings with, with the SEC. And, again, some, some, we can do look back. Some of these go back to 2016. Some of them, you know, just happened last week. And um, what we did was we correlated those ransomware events with the cybersecurity hygiene or the cybersecurity rating that Risk Recon had for those companies at the time of the event. And then we also monitored, you know, what's the cybersecurity hygiene, you know, six months later after the event, a year after, two years after, to see, okay, what's the cybersecurity hygiene at the time of the event, and then how does that change over time? So really fascinating study. Looking at demographics, I think that this is briefly interesting. So there's 56 industries that have had destructive ransomware events reported wow. publicly. So you're basically... Every industry is getting hit. We're all targets. Yeah, yeah. And those span 58 countries. So it's all geographies, all industries. And there were 63 different criminal ransomware gangs operating one or more of those attacks. So you've just got a massive amount of criminal gangs that are putting the threat pressure on every organization, every industry, when we summarize those 56 industries into just summary sectors, there's 21 sectors, the retail ISAC membership was fifth, the fifth most targeted. Not the membership, but the, the industries that you cover. So, sure. you know, the, the hospitality, retail, right. um, things Consumer like that. Facing. Right. So they represented 8% of all of the destructive ransomware attacks that, that we discovered publicly reported. So there's, there's a lot of pressure. Now, the, the, the top sector was healthcare okay. at 18% of all destructive ransomware attacks, education, both K through 12, and university represented 15%. So hmm. retail and hospitality, ISAC, 8% of all of, the, all of the threat activity. And that puts them fifth out of the 21 sectors that you sectors. tracked, right? Looking at the specific risks, how does retail and hospitality or broadly consumer-facing industry compare with the greater population that you, you researched? Uh, are the risks the same? Like what, what should our members and what should our listeners be looking out for? Yeah, yeah. So results of the study, there's a very strong correlation between the quality of your cybersecurity hygiene that we can observe from the outside, you know, through passive assessment. Mm-hmm. If you speak about it in terms of grade ratings, A through F, A-rated companies have a 35 times lower frequency of ransomware events when compared to DNF-rated organizations. Said differently, the companies that have very poor cybersecurity hygiene, rated as a D or F by Risk Recon, mm-hmm. have 35 times higher frequency of destructive ransomware events right. compared to companies that have really good cybersecurity hygiene. Right. So uh, I guess no, nobody's ever perfect, but you just want to make it hard for them because they're kind of they're lazy. They want easy targets. Right. Well, you know, they, they have to have an initial vector mm-hmm. to stage their attack through. And when you look at the ransomware events, the most common vectors, and these account for like 95 percent of the initial vectors for ransomware events, you've got phishing attack. You've got compromise of unpatched, insecure software. And then you've also got. Um, exploitation of unsafe network services like Telnet or RDP or something like that that is operating on the Internet that allows an initial vector into the organization. 
as we dove down into the details of the study, we found that companies who were victims of a ransomware event, a destructive ransomware event, had 11 times higher rate of insecure and vulnerable software operating in their internet presence, 11 times higher than companies that had never had a publicly reported destructive oh. ransomware event. So right. you see there that there's a poor performance across that population in just doing software patching and vulnerability right. management. Yeah, that's. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of emphasis and when we talk about ransomware on security awareness and the human kind of involvement, but you can protect against that by making sure that your software is up to date and making sure that you have the proper software protections enabled. Yeah. Well, so so there's a, there's a couple other points beyond beyond having 11 times more vulnerable software instances in their internet presence. Victims of destructive ransomware also had three and a half times more unsafe network services than the greater population. So they're running database servers. They're running, there's database listeners. There's um, things like RDP operating on the internet that just should not be there. I mean, these are just basic cybersecurity hygiene practices. And, and I mean, you can even look at like web encryption issues, four times higher rate of improperly configured web encryption among ransomware victims. So the study very clearly says, number one, good cybersecurity hygiene pays off. Organizations that manifest good cybersecurity hygiene on the Internet have dramatically lower rates of destructive ransomware events. Now, the other part to, Luke, to your comment about employee awareness and things like that that are necessary to avoid phishing attacks. Right. While we weren't able to observe the quality of an organization's employee awareness right. and education, what I think we learned from this is that you know, organizations that are patching their software, keeping up on that, are filtering unsafe network services from being exposed to the Internet, things like that, companies that are paying attention to those details are also paying attention to other dimensions of cybersecurity. So these things kind of operate kind of as a proxy to say, hey, yeah, we can't observe everything, but if they're doing well in these areas, there's a strong likelihood that they're doing well in right. areas, other areas of risk management. And that totally makes sense. A company that is aware of its security is going to be aware at all levels, or at least better than, than companies that are yeah. not. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Now, to, to be clear, I mean... <laughs> that the criminal gangs are pressing hard. And so, you know, great cybersecurity hygiene doesn't guarantee that you're going to not fall victim to a destructive ransomware event, but importantly, 35 times less frequency right. of that. And so it really does pay off. It's really encouraging to see that the good work results in good risk outcomes. Right. And, and so it's great to be able to kind of justify and, and back up the work that, that our members are doing and our, our cybersecurity professionals are doing. So how should CISOs convey to their business leaders, their boards, that the importance of addressing these vulnerabilities if they're having difficulty doing so? Yeah. And I think that's the value of studies like this, correlating cybersecurity hygiene quality with risk outcomes like ransomware events and data loss events. Risk Recon's in a unique position to do that across millions of companies, right. entire industry sectors. And so one of the things that organizations, I think, struggle with and CISOs struggle with is they don't have a lot of benchmark data to say, mm -hmm. 
if we do this, then we're going to get this. And, and, and doing that in a way that's based on facts, based on large-scale studies. And so I think that this provides, you know, objective data that CISOs can leverage to say, hey, what kind of risk outcomes does our organization want? Do we want to avoid ransomware attacks? Do we want to minimize the frequency of data loss events? And that's true for their own enterprise and also true for their suppliers who they're sharing data with because an increasing number of data loss events and business operations disruption is occurring because of breaches not of their own enterprise but of their suppliers. And so as you're approaching suppliers about good cybersecurity risk management, it's really important to encourage them towards good cybersecurity hygiene and good practices uh, because those are going to pay off in terms of positive business risk outcomes. So as you say, this is an objective report that they could literally take to their business leaders, their board, to their third parties and say, here is why you need to have better cybersecurity protections. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Right. The basics pay off well. And, you know, this study confirms and correlates that in this case with ransomware event frequency. Excellent. And it sounds right. This is the basics and make sure you're covered. Well, I appreciate it, Kelly. This is a great report. I think we have a kind of a longer version. You did a blog post for us on our website. So rhisec.org, if everybody wants to read that and find out more information. But I really appreciate, Kelly, you sharing this uh, this research with us. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Luke. And we're going to take a quick break to hear an important message from our sponsor, Fortinet. But stick around, because after that, Lee, JJ, and I are going to explore the work the RHISAC did to confirm the proof of concept of the Spring 4 shell vulnerability. Today's show is brought to you by Fortinet. Fortinet provides retailers with top-rated cybersecurity solutions covering the expanding attack surface. Advantages include centralized visibility and management, lower TCO, and top performance. Proven threat protection and seamless fabric integration delivers better, faster response to attacks across the entire network, including point-of-sale systems and other devices carrying sensitive information. And Fortinet helps simplify compliance with PCI DSS and other regulations. As digital innovation and the need to provide always-on customer experiences drive network transformation, retail cybersecurity has become more vital. It's essential to have a security partner that can provide simplified security and networking to keep customers' data safe and enable a superior consumer experience. For more information, contact the Fortinet team at retail at fortinet.com. All right, welcome back, everybody, and thank you again to Fortinet for the support of the RHISAC podcast. And hello to JJ Josing and Lee Clark from our very own RHISAC Intel team. What up? Hey, very good to see you guys, and thanks for joining us. So if you don't mind, let's just dive right into Spring 4 Shell. And by the way, are we at the point now where all vulnerabilities have to have the number four in them? I guess that's uh, that's the new rule. When we first got wind of this, it sounded like it was going to be on the same level as December's Log4j issue. However, it was quickly determined that this was not the case. Could you guys maybe start off by giving us some general background on what exactly Spring 4 Shell is and why it seemed like it was going to be a big deal? So, so that's a good rundown. So... Essentially, a critical severity uh, remote command execution and a proof of concept for it were found online last week in the Spring framework, which is a framework used to help code Java. It's, it's a pretty widespread and popular tool. And the RCE could allow attackers to write arbitrary fields and file paths. Now, the, the central question 
like why is the original thought that it could be like log4j and why is it not the the answer largely comes down to hype uh, and a little bit of like clickbaity tendencies that we can get into in the the security industry. Our analysis at RHISEC will usually tend to be more restrained than some of the the larger claims. So the bottom line is that this vulnerability is serious and deserves both study and attention from the security community, but it's not the level of criticality or scale that Log4j is. And the reason for this centrally, even though if – it is exploited, vulnerability allows pretty in-depth privileges. The conditions to exploit it require non-default custom configurations, and it's unclear how common those non-default configurations are in the wild. There are fixes available from both Spring and Tomcat, which are part of the uh, necessary conditions. So just updating and implementing the patches can completely neutralize your risk. The original reports that came out named the vulnerability Spring Force Shell, and Ars Technica came out with a really good article that sort of disputes that naming practice. And this isn't just semantics. It's got a, it's got a good sort of philosophical angle for how the security community should think of this, right? Basically, calling it Spring for Shell makes it sound like Log4j, which makes it sound big and scary. Ars Technica has actually come out and said that they will not be referring to the vulnerability that way. They're just calling it Spring Shell instead of Spring for Shell. Here, we've been referring to it as, as Spring for Shell just because that's the most common verb be used to refer to it in the security community, right? Okay. Uh, but that, that's the, the bottom line answer to your question is it's less dangerous than Log4j because uh, it requires non-default settings. There are already patches available for it, and it's, it's more generalized than it is uh, widespread. So this was a, a pretty condensed event. Can you take me through, walk me through a little of the timeline about when we heard about this, what you did on day one, day two, and, and how you guys came up with the proof of concept that you guys did here in-house and then kind of determined that it wasn't necessarily as big of a deal as Log4j? Sure. So if we talk about timeline, I will leave the technical stuff for my irreplaceable colleague, JJ. JJ did all the tech stuff on this. I'm more on the uh, sort of implications and context side of things, right? So March 29th, late in the evening, Eastern Coast time, reports started circulating on blog and social media about the, the vulnerability, mostly from Chinese researchers on Twitter or on their own blogs or people who are at least working in that sort of time zone, right? So, so it was while most American security researchers were, were asleep when these reports started to surface. So on the morning of March 30th, the RHI SEC team, as well as security researchers with any other firms in the region, we started seeing the blog posts with details, specifically the original CyberKinder post uh, that was really popular and sort of spread the the initial hype about the vulnerability as well as naming it Spring for Shell. At that point, investigations start at pretty much every security organization. Once we hear that there's a big one and it could be as big as Log4j, everybody starts investigating as soon as they hear about it, including us. So multiple organizations then confirm proof concept, us being one of them. And there are a lot of alarmist reactions and hype and, and clickbait about it. March 31st, Spring announces in kind of a moody, upset post that they're confirming the vulnerability. They were hoping to have the fix released and confirm at the same time, but 
those who shall be unnamed rudely leaked it and got ahead of them. They provided details on the conditions for exploitations. They released their fixes, and they assigned the CVE designation, CVE uh, 2022-22965, which is, you know, easier to say than Spring Show. Then the Internet Storm Center, ISC, published a report that they had seen in the wild exploit attempts, and then a couple of reports since then have also said that they've seen in the wild exploits. So far from what we've seen, none of those deviate from the original POC. So so there's not really a lot of customization to the original vector that I've seen, right? So that's March 31st. On April 1st, Tomcat, who's an organization that, that works with Spring, they're one of the conditions that are required for exploitation, they released a fix as well. So now there's a double fix for it release. After April 1, most of the security community starts to realize that this isn't quite as bad as originally thought, and business resumes as usual. For the second part of your question as to exactly what we did on March 30th when we started investigating. I'll pass that over to my illustrious colleague, JJ. Yeah, JJ, you did some uh, pretty interesting work in determining, uh, first of all, confirming the proof of concept. uh, And we are one of the first most accurate publications about it. And by the way, Lee, who knew that cybersecurity was so so uh, emotional, the moody responses and the excited responses. But, JJ, let's get let's get down to the facts. Most of this is over my head, obviously. So explain to me and to our listeners what exactly you did during this process. Yeah, certainly. So early on, there was a lot of confusion between a remote code execution vulnerability that was affecting Spring Cloud and the Spring Foreshell remote code execution vulnerability that was affecting the Spring Core. And at, at the time, it did not have the CVE assigned. And early on, I was able to find an infograph from a Twitter user, the protocol, that did a really good job detailing and describing the differences between the two. And running with that and knowing what I was looking for, I was then able to obtain a copy of the initially released GitHub repository, thanks to VX Underground. And then we went on to verify the POC, the proof of concept. There was early chatter over proof of concept, but after some investigation, it turned out to be some spyware. And this is just one reason why code review is important when dealing with proof of concept exploits. And then when source code is unavailable, like with compiled executables, it's best practice to perform some combination of static or dynamic analysis using a sandbox environment to ensure you're not dealing with some Trojan of some form. Uh, And however, in this case, the original proof of concept ended up being a Python script that was making two HTTP requests. And once we believed we had the valid proof of concept, we created a sample spring application to then test the proof of concept. And our initial testing was unsuccessful when deploying the spring app as an executable jar file, which is the default. However, when deployed as a war file, the proof of concept worked as detailed in the repository's readme file. And then although remote code execution was indeed possible, it required quite a few prerequisites uh, that are as follows, using Java 9 or higher, using the Apache Tomcat as the servlet container, the application being packaged as a traditional war and deployed in a standalone Tomcat instance, in contrast to the default Spring Boot executable jar, using either the Spring Web MVC or Spring Web Flux dependencies, and then lastly using one of the vulnerable Spring Framework versions. And then ultimately, the number of conditions needed for exploitation led us to believe that this wasn't going to turn into the next log for shell. And then getting a little bit more into what it does, what the vulnerability is, the vulnerability is caused by the get cached introspection results method of the Spring Framework, wrongfully exposing the class object when binding the member properties. Then when accessing 
member object properties, the binding process, and the spring framework implementation will call the get cached introspection results method to get and set the object property in the cache. This class object can be remotely controlled by simply submitting a payload to a URL. And in the case of this proof of concept, it used an exposed class loader to modify and change the Tomcat log configuration to remotely upload a JSP web shell. Now, when it comes to detecting it, we provided some community ER rules for detection that were posted by Florian Roth. And they include three rules. One that detects generic JSP web shells, one that detects indicators found after the Spring Core exploitation attempts, as well as in the POC script. And then lastly, one to detect the web shell found after the Spring Core exploitation attempts from the POC script. And there are a few ways to defend against it. The simplest way is going to be update your Spring framework to the latest release. But if that can't be done, there are a few suggested workarounds that include upgrading Tomcat, downgrading to Java 8, um, or having developers disable binding to a particular field setting, just allowed fields on the binding process globally. Excellent. Wow, that's that's amazing. Thank you very much, JJ. And, and thank you very much for both of you guys for keeping not only our members, but the cybersecurity community up to date on these issues on our website, on our blog, rhisec.org. I think it's it's really a service uh, when these major events happen and vulnerabilities are exposed that we're able to, to let everybody know and, and not only do the kind of analysis that you guys are doing, but then promote it so that, that people have access to it. So I really appreciate the work you guys have been doing. So I want to thank you for joining this episode of the podcast and to Kelly also for joining me today. Thanks to all of you, the listeners, for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get alerts when new episodes are available. We do them about twice a month. You won't want to miss the next episode later this month, which will perhaps help you raise your cybersecurity rating. Members of our Incident Response Working Group will be having a discussion on the playbook. So until then, stay safe out there. Goodbye, everyone.